I read a, stati- a statistic this week that kind of shocked me a little bit, and I guess I shouldn't have been so surprised by it, but here it is. As of 2020, there are 3.9 billion people actively using social media in the world. Now, to put that in perspective, there are 7.7 billion people on Earth. So we're talking more or at least barely more than half of them on some social media like Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. Now, that actually says they are actively using social media. So I guess that doesn't really include me because I'm not really an active user. I'm very rarely on there. And, And frankly, a lot of what is on social media is a waste of time, right? Just way to kill time. And one thing that was made popular, especially in Facebook, is the quiz. And if you're on Facebook, you probably know what I'm talking about. There are these little ridiculous quizzes that pop up from time to time about the most innate stuff that you can imagine. Uh, it's quizzes to discover you know, what your spirit animal is. And you answer five questions. And ultimately, a lot of these things are to get your personal information. But nevertheless, uh, people obviously take the time to build them. Find out what Sherlock Holmes character you are. You know, put in your information, and you can determine what your hippie name would be. And all these quizzes. And like I said, most of them are just time wasters. It makes you wonder what people did before we had all these flickering screens to keep us occupied all the time. And to tell you know, what Broadway musical best describes your life. But what you might not know is it turns out the Facebook quiz has actually a very long history. Back in the late 1800s, a French novelist named Marcel Proust created a parlor game. Now, parlor games were kind of a popular fad at the time. It was sort of things to, to do for the aristocratic class as they would you know, have guests over, fun activities. Well, one of the things that was going around at this time was a questionnaire. You, know, you would have a series of questions and people would answer it sort of for fun, kind of like a Facebook quiz. Well, as these were going around, Mr. Proust decided he would create his own, which has become known as the Proust Questionnaire. The questionnaire is really more like an icebreaker. It asks a series of questions in order to get some, to know someone better. It includes questions like, uh, what do you consider your greatest achievement? Uh, which living person do you most admire? Things like that. Well, the Proust questionnaire has swirled around the world ever since it was created in 1890. And it regularly appears in magazines where popular celebrities, for instance, will be asked this series of questions. Uh, for instance... One late-night talk show host was asked the question, who or what is the greatest love of your life? In which he responded, the who is my wife, the what is pizza. A basketball star, very well-known, took the questionnaire, and to the question, who or what is the greatest love of your life, he answered, my children and grandchildren. I know it's corny, but it's true. And though it's not asked exactly this way on the Proust questionnaire, what is the greatest thing in your life? would be one that could perhaps elicit some interesting answers. I think a lot of people would say, well, my family, just like that basketball player, my family is the greatest thing in my life. That's what keeps me going. Since today is Mother's Day, someone might reply, well, my mother, my mom's the greatest thing in my life. She's my biggest supporter, my biggest fan. My mom is the greatest thing in my life. Just imagine you took this little question and Let's just imagine a scene where you could ask a whole swath of people, what is the greatest thing in your life? We might imagine that the, the intellectual 
comes along. And he says, well, the greatest thing is knowledge. It's, it's education, learning. That's the greatest thing in life. You meet a businessman, ask him the same question. Well, the greatest thing is success. It is making a fortune. That's the greatest thing in life. The politician comes by, and if he's honest, which I know is kind of an oxymoron, he might answer, power is the greatest thing in life. To, to reach the top. To the philosopher, you ask the question, and he answers, reason is the greatest thing, or some other you know, abstraction is the greatest thing in life. You stop the average person, you ask, well, what's the greatest thing? And he says, well, maybe life itself. Just to be alive, just to enjoy life, that's the greatest thing in the world. Well, if we stop the Apostle Paul in this long list of people, he would answer, I think, as he does right here in Philippians. Because he gives us the answer to what is the most, what is the greatest thing in life. And he says, the greatest thing in life is knowing Christ. It's, it's the greatest thing that any of us can know. To know Christ is the greatest thing in life. There's nothing better, nothing sweeter, nothing more important than knowing the Savior. So as you find your way back to Philippians 3 this morning, we return to Paul's own testimony. The middle of chapter 3, Paul has been describing his own life experience. He's warning the Philippians against these false teachers who would insist on keeping the law, doing enough, checking off the list. That's what makes you right before God. And Paul says, I've tried that. His life was one experiment in self-righteousness. If you could do it, Paul did it. He checked all the boxes. He had all the right connections. He had all the right family history. If anyone could get to heaven because of their good works and their devotion, it would have been Paul. In fact, Paul states in another place in Galatians that he was advancing beyond his contemporaries. All the Pharisees who prided themselves in their law-keeping, Paul says, I was, I was way out ahead of them. He has this impressive list of accomplishments in verses 5 and 6. But Paul realizes it's all loss. You know, if Paul went to a religious Jewish high school, he probably would have been voted the most likely to succeed as a rabbi. And he was. He was the king of the hill. He was on top of the pile. And that's when he realized, when God opened his eyes, that the pile he was on was a pile of manure. It was a pile of garbage, not a pile of great achievements. All the righteousness he had amassed was of no real value. Now he had a new passion, a new desire, a new heart to know Christ. No longer did all that other stuff matter most. No, no longer was his self-made righteousness the greatest thing in his life. Now it was knowing Christ. Look together. We're going to talk about Philippians 3, primarily in verses 7 through 11. He starts off this way in verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I count all things loss for the excellence of of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ. He's filled with this all-consuming passion, this goal to know Christ. And Paul gives us a picture here of what it means to know him, 
to know Jesus. And if knowing Christ is the greatest thing in life, shouldn't we want that? Shouldn't we pursue that? Well, if we want to know Christ, there are three things I think we can do. And based on this passage, here they are. Number one, we should pursue Christ passionately. Pursue Christ passionately. And that, more than anything else, I think comes out in these verses, is Paul's passion. You can't just read these verses in a monotone. It just doesn't work. I tried it. And the verse is just glowing with Paul's passion to know Christ. There's this sense in which his heart is crying out, I want to know Christ and know him more. If knowing Christ is the greatest thing in life, wouldn't we want to pursue it with passion? Likewise, if other things are not the most important things in life, why would we pursue those with passion? You know, if if collecting Pokemon cards or making a million dollars or doing a crossword puzzle was not the most important thing in the world, why do we sometimes act like it is? We see in these verses Paul's passionate pursuit of Christ. Now, our study last Sunday ended on verse 7. And there, after the whole rehearsal of of Paul's spiritual resume, he renounces his attempts at self-righteousness. He calls them loss for the sake of Christ. See that in verse 7? What things were gained to me, and what are those things? It's all the stuff he mentioned in the previous two verses. All of his pedigree, and all of his accomplishments, and all of his self-assured confidence, he says those things that were gained, those are the things I used to lean on. The things that I counted on for my acceptance before God. He says those things that were gained are now loss. Those two things worth noting here in verse 7. Number one, the language of gain and loss has already been used in Philippians. Remember back in chapter 1, Paul says, For me to live is Christ, to die is what? Gain. It's gain. So this, this type of language has already been used. Also, it's important to note that this language is of a financial nature. The whole idea of loss and gain is the idea of of profit and loss. And he's working as if on a ledger here. In, In order to evaluate what has spiritual value and what is spiritually worthless, he puts it on here like it is a a statement of financial value. The things that are assets He used to consider all of his accomplishments, his achievements, to be assets, and now he says, that's loss. Those are things I chalk up as business losses. And now the only asset I have, the only thing that really matters on my the positive column is knowing Christ. It's the greatest thing in his life. He's able to evaluate what is of spiritual value and what is spiritually worthless. He counts these things or considers them loss. Why? For Christ. I want to point out, as as Paul passionately pursues Christ, it helps him to recognize the worthlessness of everything. Now, that's kind of a comprehensive way to say that, and maybe I should back that up. When I say everything is worthless, I'm talking about spiritually. It's not that Paul says that, you know, your family is worthless, your job is worthless, all your... Everything that you do is worthless. That's not the point. The point is before God, that doesn't earn you anything. Your family doesn't earn you points with God because, you know, you had a missionary in your family two generations back uh, because your family always goes to church and 
and gets there five minutes before service, you know. That doesn't count for spiritual righteousness. So I'm not saying that things are worthless in in and of themselves, but on a spiritual evaluation, yes, they are. That's what Paul basically is saying here. These things that were gain are now loss. He's specifically talking about these badges of honor that he used to wear. Then look at the beginning of verse 8. He says, yet indeed. That kind of marks that he's adding what he said before and then adding to it. So in other words, all those things I just mentioned, everything that I was previously putting my confidence in, and by extension, anything else that I haven't mentioned that you might put your confidence in, all of it, he says, I count as loss. He says, I count all things loss. You know what all things means there? It means all things. It means everything that he might have considered to be of value spiritually. He now says, it doesn't matter to me because it's been displaced by the one thing that matters, the greatest thing in life, which is knowing Christ. It causes a total reevaluation of everything in light of the truth. What was once the greatest thing in Paul's life is now turned upside down, and the thing which before he, he hadn't even recognized, knowing Christ, is now the only thing that matters to him. Now, some people right here in our own church could testify and say, you know what, before I came to Christ, there was something that was the greatest thing in my life. My family, my job, my education, my business, my, my money. I lived for that. You know, I lived for sports. I lived for entertainment. That was the greatest thing in my life. And then when I came to know Christ, it was turned upside down. Those things that I once thought were the the most important things on my calendar suddenly became relatively unimportant compared to the value of knowing Christ. For Jesus' sake, Paul suffered the loss of all things. He laid down all of his spiritual position and righteousness that once he once thought belonged to him. He'd come to see it as worthless compared to knowing Christ. Then at the end of verse 8, you notice this? He says, for indeed, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. And I've suffered the loss of all things, he repeats that, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. He counts them as worthless, as garbage. This word rubbish is the translation of the Greek word skubalon. It was a term which was quite unpleasant. It refers to something that would be tossed out as garbage, something that was thrown to the dogs. Now, I know that some, some of you guys feed your dogs, you know, grain-free, made from real beef, you know, no GMO dog food. You might even feed them from your table. But we're talking about ancient times where dogs were scavengers. They ate garbage. They ate out of trash cans. And so what he's saying is the stuff that is no longer even fit to be in your home, the stuff that's tossed out in the street... Worthless, trash. Some, some translations even render this as the word dung. It's, it's something that is repulsive. Garbage. Filthy. That's what Paul thinks of his righteousness. That's what he thinks of all of his spiritual resume. And I would like to say, in comparison with knowing Christ, everything in life is just worthless. 
Now, it may have some value. I'm not saying toss everything out. But I am saying that compared to knowing Christ, there's nothing that even comes close. Knowing Christ is the greatest thing in life. Paul also highlights here the surpassing worth of Christ. If, If everything else is worthless in comparison, that means Christ is gloriously worthy. Gloriously worthy. The passion of Paul, I think, is loud and clear here. Christ is the greatest thing in life. His life was consumed with this passionate pursuit of Jesus. His chief aim, his main objective, his ultimate desire was to know Christ. Let me just ask, does that ring with you, this surpassing worth of Christ? Do you want to know him more? I think it's easy sometimes for us to grow pretty comfortable with Christ. We think to ourselves, yes, you know, Christ is the greatest thing, but I've moved on. And maybe it's a subtle thing where we would would honestly acknowledge, yeah, Christ is the greatest thing in my life. But if we stop and think about it, it really doesn't change a lot of our activities and attitude. It's, It's like we've subtly moved past. You know, we're, we're kind of over that. And we might have one time felt this deep desire that I want to know him. I want to, I want to come to really know Christ. And now we're sort of like, well, I know him. I'm, I'm happy with where I'm at with the Lord. That's not what you get from Paul. Look at verse 8. He says, Yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. That's kind of a tedious way to say it, the way this is translated. Excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. But that's actually pretty accurate to the way it originally reads. Some versions express it maybe a little more clearly when they say the surpassing value of knowing Christ. That's the idea. That it's of the greatest worth. In Paul's mind, nothing compares with knowing Christ. Let's talk about this word know for a minute. It means to know not just in terms of rote knowledge, facts. You know, there's a, I know a lot of things about history, philosophy, science, but most of them are just little snippets of facts. I can't really say that I really understand everything. It's just I pick up a little bit here, I read an article, I, I you know, read a book, and I have a lot of little factoids, I guess we could call them. And some would call that knowledge. That's not this word, though. This talks about knowledge by experience. It's the knowledge of a person that you get by spending time with them. We understand the difference, right? That I can can read all about somebody's life and know the details of somebody who's been dead for two centuries. And I can tell you, you know, what happened to them and who their parents were and, you know, what their relationships were like because I've read about them. I know a lot. But that is a very different experience than sitting down across a coffee table with them and talking. That's knowing someone in a totally different way. That's what he's talking about here. To know Christ personally. Not just, did you know that Jesus was a man who lived in Galilee and was crucified by the Romans? No, but to know him. Because here's the fact. Jesus lives. He's not a dead historical figure. He is the living Savior that we can have a relationship with him through the gospel. 
And since that is true, Paul says, I want to, I don't just want to know him in the, the most superficial way. I want to know him deeply. And he uses the full title here. You notice that in verse 8? He says, I want to have the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Each of those statements is significant. I don't want to spend a lot of time with them, but Christ, he's the anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus, the God-man, the one who was the Savior, the one who would take away the sins of his people. And then he says, my Lord. He's the sovereign ruler of the universe, the very essence of God. And he claims him as my Lord. There's nothing better than knowing Christ. Not just knowing about him, but knowing him. Knowing Christ is the greatest thing in the world and implies that we should passionately pursue it. There's this sense of unsettled dissatisfaction in Paul's words here. It's what some have called a holy discontent. It's this deep desire to know God more. It's, it's, Paul's not happy with his knowledge of God as it is. He says, I want to know Christ. In fact, look down at verse 10. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. He says, I want to know Christ, whatever it takes. It's very much the same thing you find in the book of Psalms. Paul and, and David would have, I think, got along quite well. Because both of them had this holy discontent. And you can read it in the Psalms where David, just his heart is almost almost breaking to know Christ more, to know the Lord more. He's not satisfied with where he is. In fact, listen to this. This is from Psalm 63. The first verse reads like this. O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. In a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life my lips shall praise you he goes on but you get the idea david is pressing on to know christ he 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 wants to know the lord not just in a abstract way in a personal way like paul centuries later david longs for the lord with all of his heart the question is, are we characterized by this deep, passionate longing to pursue Christ and know him? In the 19th century, there was an author and hymn writer named Elizabeth Payson Prentice. She really is a great model of faith. She had a lot of trials that came in her life. When she was nine years old, her father died. Uh, later on in life, she was confined to bed as an invalid and spent most of her adult life on her back. Her husband also suffered from ill health. In 19, uh, or excuse me, in 1852, in the period of three months, two of her children died. So her life knew tragedy. And yet she represents someone who had this same kind of passionate pursuit of Christ. Here's what she wrote in a letter in the 1850s. To love Christ more this is the deepest need, the constant cry of my soul. Down in the bowling alley and out in the woods, on my bed and out driving, when I am happy and busy and when I am sad and idle, the whisper keeps coming up. More, 
love, more love, more love. In case you couldn't tell, she was the author of the hymn, More Love, O Christ, to Thee. Jeremiah Burroughs, who was a Puritan pastor in England, wrote that the Christian is the most contented man in the world and yet the most unsatisfied man in the world. And here's what he's talking about. This heart that says, Lord, I want to know you more. I'm not satisfied with where I am. I want to know Christ. I don't want to know, just know about you. I want to know Christ himself. And this is one of the things that I think that I really struggle with. Because as a teacher, preacher, you can know a lot and you can teach a lot. But I don't want to just know about, and I don't want to just teach about Christ. I want to know him. And so here's a question. It's a rather pointed and exposing question, but it's, it's as much pointed at me as you. Here it is. If the greatest thing in your life is knowing Christ, why don't you act like it? If the greatest thing in your life is knowing Christ, why don't you act like that's the greatest thing? Because sometimes we get caught up acting like other things are the greatest. Like supper is the greatest thing in my life. Like free time is the greatest thing in my life. Like my opinion is the greatest thing in my life. It's knowing Christ. So if we want to know him, we need to pursue Christ passionately. Secondly, though, we need to trust Christ completely. Trust Christ completely. He says in verse 9, picking up on his own spiritual resume, not only does he want to gain Christ, he says, I want to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. He wants to trust Christ completely. To know him really is to trust him. And to know Christ, you must savingly trust in him. That is, trust him with your soul. Now, back in verse 3 of this chapter, Paul described true believers as those who have no confidence in the flesh. Well, for years, Paul had lived as a man with confidence in the flesh. You know, He was leaning on that spiritual resume of his. But now he had learned to wholly trust Christ, to trust him completely. He's not leaning on, well, 5% of my good works and 95% of Jesus' righteousness. No, wholly on Christ. He ends the last verse by saying that I may gain Christ. Everything else is lost to him. And he says, what I want, the one thing I want on my, on my positive side of my ledger is Christ. Then he says, I want to be found in him. I want to be found in him. That seems to imply being found on the last day. That's how Paul uses this word elsewhere. That when, when the day of judgment arrives, I want to be found not standing there in a garment of my own righteousness. I want to be there in Christ's, clothed with his perfect record, not my own best attempts. So I want to be found in Christ. Well, how can a person know Christ? Well, it's by having his sins forgiven, by trusting in Christ for his, as his Savior. Now, this verse, verse 9, contrasts two types of righteousness. First of all is law righteousness, or we could say it's self-righteousness. He talks about that here. Having my own righteousness, that which he produced, that's what he has done, which is from the law. In other words, Paul was trying to create a righteous a righteous uh, record 
that he could hold before the Lord by his own attempts to keep the law. By doing the works of the law, by checking off the boxes, by piling up his own righteousness, he would impress God. That was the thought here. But that doesn't impress God. In fact, God is repulsed by man's attempts to try to dress himself up as if he was good enough. Really, this, this verse contrasts not just two, two types of righteousness, it contrasts two saviors. You can either be your own savior and try and save yourself by your good works, or you can trust in Jesus as your savior. The choice is yours. One path leads to condemnation, one to eternal life. See, he had learned that the path of law righteousness was not going to cut it. Now, he talks about the law here. He's talking about, about the Mosaic law, which the Pharisees prided themselves in. You know, they tried to keep it and tried to be good enough. Now, the law was good as God intended it, but they had made it a matter of, well, if we do these things, God will be impressed. God will certainly accept me if I have enough, if I've done enough things. Well, that's not how that works. But that's sadly how a lot of people look at spiritual life. Have I done enough good things? That's why some people will even dare to suggest that their standing before God is good because of they're a pretty good Christian. By Christian, I don't mean they've trusted in Christ, but you know, they've never said a swear word, never listened to secular music, haven't, haven't missed Sunday school in five years, have even read their Bible like clockwork every day. Well, I'm not saying those are bad things, but none of them are going to make you righteous. Jerry Bridges, in one of his books, quotes this confession, and I think it's uh, representative of how a lot of people think. This man writes, I was like a modern-day Pharisee. I went to church each week and sat there thinking how much better I was than my family members who slept in. I believe God accepted me because my sins were small compared to those of my friends. But once I understood the righteousness of Christ provided in the gospel, I realized I had been no more good than an unbeliever. I called myself a Christian and sat alongside others who placed their faith in Christ but at best, I was a nominal Christian, a Christian by name only, not by genuine faith in the gospel. What a scary place to be where someone would you know, looks the part, but falls short of actually trusting Jesus for their righteousness. It struck me this week as I was studying this passage, this kind of law righteousness is entirely selfish. Think about it. Because what does the, the self-righteous person say? He says, look at me, I have done enough, I have kept the law, I have earned my right, so let me in. It's entirely self-focused, whereas knowing Christ is entirely unselfish, right? Paul here is not talking about himself, he's saying, I want to know him. He's the only one that matters. It's unselfish. So there's law righteousness, but then on the other side is Christ righteousness, this is what we need. It is Jesus' pure righteousness given to us. You notice what it says at the end of verse 9. He doesn't want the, his own righteousness from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. 
It's the, the righteousness that's given to him. Not, the, not him doing enough to sort of lift himself up. It is God's righteousness given to him. It's the, the account of Jesus credited to his account. And that's what justification is. It is Jesus' righteousness being bestowed upon us. That doesn't mean we immediately become totally Christ-like. But it does mean that when God views us, he sees Christ's righteousness and not our sin. It's all over the New Testament, by the way. Romans 4, 5 says, But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Also, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So are you trusting your own good works, or are you putting your faith in Christ and his righteousness? It's only the perfect record is going to get into heaven. And the only perfect record is Jesus. So if only by having his righteousness on our account can we truly be saved. A little parable might be helpful at this point. There once was a powerful and mighty king of a vast kingdom. And on a certain night, he decided to schedule a ball in which all the people of the kingdom would be invited into the palace for this wonderful event. There would be food and drink in abundance. There would be dancing. It would be a wonderful time. And most of the commoners in the kingdom had never even seen the inside of a nice building before, much less the king's palace. So everyone was excited when the invitation was extended to everyone in the kingdom. There was only one requirement. Every guest needed to show up with an unspotted garment. Now, as people thought about this, they realized that they didn't have that. Well, one man in the kingdom decided immediately that he was going to make his own unspotted garment. So he began collecting little scraps of cloth, little pieces that he could find, most of them stained and soiled beyond being able to tell what the original color was. He wore his arms out, scrubbing, trying to clean the stains out. And then he began to stitch together all these tiny little pieces into a tunic. And the thing looked positively wretched. But the more he began to sew on it, the prouder he became of it. This was his work. And and to him, it looked pretty fantastic. So on the day of the ball, he dons his garment and marches up to the castle hoping to be allowed entrance. The guards put the pikes in the way and stop him and ask where he's going. He, of course, insists that in his newly created unspotted garment, he's going to the ball. Well, to no one's surprise, he is turned away. Meanwhile, another commoner in the kingdom decides to come to the palace for the ball. He has no pretension in getting in. He walks up in his soiled garment, and the guards again close the door and say, where do you think you're going? And he replies much more wisely than the previous man. I have no unspotted garment to wear, but I have come in order to appeal to the kindness of the king that he would accept me as I am. And from that moment, out of the shadows steps the king, carrying with him an unspotted garment he gives to the man, and he enters. I think the point is fairly clear, right? 
mankind works to make his own righteousness, which really is no righteousness at all. And the one who comes in faith and asks receives the pure, unspotted righteousness of Jesus. You know, the Bible, Revelation and other places, describes believers in heaven as wearing white robes. I think that's an invitation for us to think of it in these terms. It said well in that well-known hymn, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. It's the only way you'll be faultless. The only way to know Christ is to trust him completely. Third, though, if we're to know him, we must follow Christ sacrificially. Now, there's a lot packed into these final two verses, but we're going to cover them fairly quickly. But part of knowing Christ is following him. After all, if someone is to call themselves the disciple of Jesus, they must follow him, no matter the cost. The 12 disciples that followed Jesus during his earthly life provide a good lesson on this point. After all, if you were Peter or John living in Galilee at that time, if you wanted to know this man who was wandering the hillsides of Galilee, claiming to be the Son of God and healing people, if you wanted to know him, you had to follow him. There was no other way. You know, back in that time, you couldn't, they didn't have the, all those social media platforms like we talked about at the beginning. You, know, you couldn't just follow him on Twitter. You had to follow him in real life. You had to get to know him and, and follow in his footsteps. That was the only way to get to know Christ. And that, for the disciples, turned out to be a very costly thing. They had to sacrifice. Number one, they had to sacrifice to follow Jesus in the first place, didn't they? You know, they had to leave their professions. They had to leave their families at times to go follow Jesus. So it was, it was a sacrifice. But even after Jesus went, returned to heaven, the disciples, one by one, gave their lives for Christ. It was very costly. Ultimately, disciples, all disciples, are asked to sacrifice. If we're going to follow Jesus, it's going to require some sacrifices. Look at verse 10. Again, Paul cries out, that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Here in verses 10 and 11, we have three phrases which explain what it means to know Christ. Again, the first phrase is a repeat from before. I want to know him. That's the overwhelming center of this passage. I want to know Christ. How do we know him? Well, he describes it through these three phrases. First of all, the power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection. Uh, by the way, notice the key word in verses 10 and 11. Well, mainly 10. That I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. It's all about Jesus. Basically, what Paul is saying in this verse is, I want to know him. Whatever it takes for me to know Christ, if it means following him to the grave, fine. If that helps me know Christ, then, then I'm ready to go. If it's going to require me to suffer along the way, that's fine. I want to know Christ. He begins, though, by saying the power of his resurrection. Now, in nowhere in Jesus' life and ministry does the power come through more than his resurrection, the power of the Holy Spirit. So he says, I want to know Christ in that power. After all, if Jesus was dead, there would be no one to follow. There would be no one to know personally. But Christ is alive, and through that power, it makes knowing him possible. He says, I want to I know that. If there's power in knowing Christ, I want to know that power. 
the, the power of God expressed through the resurrection is clear from other verses like Romans 4, 1, or 1, 4, Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. That power is the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the power which has brought us from spiritual death into spiritual life. It's the power that will transform our earthly bodies into the likeness of his heavenly body. He says, I want to know that power. Second, though, he says, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. So in other words, Paul is saying, I I want to suffer. If that means, if knowing Christ requires that I suffer, bring it on. Because to me, knowing Christ is the most important thing. It's the greatest thing in life. Now, he calls this the fellowship of sufferings. Now, we talked about this Greek word koinonia. It means fellowship. It means partnership. It means having something in common. So the fellowship of his sufferings is suffering in common with Christ, suffering as he did. Not in the same way. Obviously, we're not atoning for anyone's sins. But if you're a follower of Jesus, expect to be treated like Jesus. Suffering is going to come. Do you want to know Christ? Well, what if it involves suffering? Would you be up for that? Would you still want to know him? Paul did. Remember, he's writing from a jail cell because of his commitment to Jesus when he writes this. All the the things that he had previously considered valuable, he now traded for knowing Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings. He says, I want to know Christ even if it means I have to suffer with him. This naturally leads to, finally, the pattern of his death. Not only does he want to know the power of his resurrection, the Fellowship of his sufferings, he wants to know the pattern of his death. He says, being conformed to his death at the end of verse 10. doesn't mean you have to die in order to know Christ. But it does mean that the believer must die to himself. It means willing to go all the way. What did Jesus tell his disciples? He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, take up his cross means to basically give yourself up for dead. If that's what it takes, if, if it takes even going to the sword, Paul says, I want to know Christ. Finally, though, we have verse 11, which is interesting. It says, if by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. It sounds as if Paul is saying, I'm not sure if I'm going to rise or not. But that's not what he's getting at. I think Paul is approaching this last statement because, listen, if Paul wants to know Christ, and he does, it's ultimately he wants to know Christ face to face. And that's only going to happen through the resurrection. And so I think he approaches this with a a humility. he's, He's saying this is the opposite of his previous attitude. Previously it was, I've done enough things, God will surely accept me. Now he says, if by any means I attain the resurrection of the dead. In other words, the only way I'm going to be raised is if God is merciful on me, a sinner. But Paul doesn't doubt that he will be raised or doubting the resurrection itself. He's simply saying, if, if there's any resurrection at all, if, if I'm going to be part of that wonderful day, it's only by God's grace, not by my achievement. So Paul knows that to know Christ means to follow him sacrificially. And trust me, you will never know Christ in a deep way unless you're willing to lay down yourself, deny yourself, and be willing to suffer for his sake. Well, I hope this morning has stirred something inside you. Because the greatest thing in the world is to know Christ. But I think sometimes our 
our passion and our desire and love grows cold. And I think maybe the indictment against Christianity, perhaps Christianity in America, is not that we are unsatisfied, but that we're too easily satisfied. Oh, yeah, I know Christ. That's enough for me, you know. And, and we're willing to settle for sort of a superficial. I, I wish more of us, myself included at times, had more of the heart of Paul or David who says, Lord, I'm agonizing here because I want to know you more. I want to know Christ. I want to experience suffering if that means I get to know Christ better and come to, to understand a relationship with him deeper. You know, I think sometimes we need to break free of this too easily satisfied. You know, I, I have enough of Christ. I'm happy with sort of a superficial knowledge of Christ. Well, that would hardly fit in with Paul. Practically in agony here because he wants a deeper knowledge of Christ. So what can we do? What can we do this morning to know Christ more? Let me suggest five things very quickly. Number one, get alone with God and confess. Say, well, confess? Confess what? Well, if, if this is you and you're, you're saying to yourself, you know what, I'm, I'm passionate pursuit of Christ. I, I'm not feeling in my heart this desire like Paul's talking about here where he's crying out, I want to know you. Maybe the place to start, always the place to start with the Lord, is to simply confess and say, Lord, I confess that I don't, I don't want to know you as much as I ought to. I, God, give me a heart that longs for you like David had, like Paul had. I want to know you. And, and get along with the Lord and, and confess that. Number two, worship Christ from the heart. Worship Christ from the heart. Again, how do we come to realize the value, the surpassing worth, what Paul says, of knowing Christ? I think it's going to be through worship. Worship Christ. Just for a moment, get a sense of his greatness. Sometimes we lose that because we're so tied up with other stuff. Other things become more important and more significant, and so Christ seems relatively small compared to those things. Worship Christ from the heart. Number three, read the Gospels with fresh eyes. And you say, well, I've read the Gospels before, lots of times. I know you have. Well, I hope you have. And that's great. But sometimes you, gotta, you almost have to try to take yourself out. Because you know, you're reading the Gospel of John and you say, you know, I've read this five times before. And you know, it's so familiar that you almost just start skimming through it. Don't. Stop. Slow down. Pay attention. And you will see things you've never seen before. The fact that we, we're so familiar with it causes us to be so trivial with it. So try to go back as much as you can. I know you can't erase you know, your, your memory. Well... Not intentionally, at least. Um, but go back and try and read it like it's the first time. And see if you don't come away wanting to know Christ more. Number four, set aside a portion of time for fellowship with Christ. Set aside a portion of time for fellowship with Christ. It's difficult in our busy and tumultuous times, but it's absolutely necessary. Finally, though, develop a hunger to know Christ more deeply. Hopefully all of these steps are helping drive towards that point. But get it in your heart, in your soul, to just hunger to know Christ like Paul talks about here. I want to close with the, the words of a song that some of you probably know. It's the song Knowing You. 
The verse says, All I once held dear, built my life upon, sounds exactly like Paul in Philippians 3, All this world reveres and wars to own, all I once thought gain, I counted loss, spent and worthless now compared to this. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You are my all, you are the best. You are my joy, my righteousness, and I love you.